Um, glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, if this maybe is your first time at Two Rivers Church, welcome. Uh, we're so glad you are, you are here today. We are uh, wrapping up a, a sermon series today in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been taking the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter by chapter, uh, a week at a time ever since uh, the beginning of October. And so we are landing our King Jesus series today. And so uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in the middle of Matthew 27. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. We'll be the second half of Matthew 27 today and all of Matthew 28 uh, this morning. And let me just say this on the front end. Um, kind of a tradition here at Two Rivers is when we finish a series, we give some space at the end of the message uh, for anyone that would like to just stand and share a testimony of how this particular series has impacted you in some way, some way of encouragement, equipping. Uh, it's beautiful to hear uh, people share last service. Uh, and so I haven't set any of you in motion, just so you know, there's no pastor trick on this. There's no person out there waiting to be the first one. Uh, and so as we are talking through this, if you feel stirred of the Lord to share a testimony of how this series has impacted you, uh, be thinking, praying about that. And if your heart's beating fast like this when we started, that means you should be the one to stand. Okay, just so you know, that's how that works. Um, I want to start this way this morning and thinking about uh, where we left off last week, Jesus on the cross of Calvary, giving up his spirit, literally the murder of Jesus. I want to start by acknowledging uh, again uh, the reality of evil things happening in our world today. Uh, this week, uh, our country has endured more, more suffering and more senseless tragedy, as you well know. A grocery store in Buffalo, New York, a Taiwanese church in Southern California, a senseless, tragic suffering. And, um, you know, we're, we're exposed to suffering and tragedy uh, every day. And I think a danger for us sometimes when these stories come is uh, a compassion fatigue. Um, it's um, somewhere else. And it's people that I don't know. And so we just move on with our lives. And I want to, um, I want to encourage us not uh, to do that uh, this morning. I think Compassion fatigue can uh, make us retreat and to not engage in things that the people of God need to engage in and can cause us perhaps even to feel uh, some despair uh, that things will never uh, change. And so as we continue the crucifixion narrative today, uh, we will see something in Jesus' murder that will give us an answer to our questions. How are we to respond? What are we to do, and it's the compassion of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the hope that Jesus died for us and rose again that compels God's people to love with compassion and proclaim the hope of Jesus in our world. Amen? I want to read something from N.T. Wright about his commentary on, the, on Matthew's narrative of the crucifixion. And he says this, all the strands of evil in the world seem to rush together upon Jesus. The power-seeking politics of the local elite, the casual brutality 
of the imperial Rome, the disloyalty of Judas, the failure of Peter, the large systems which crush those in their way, and the intimate, sharply personal betrayals. And everything in between, the scorn, the misunderstanding, the violence, the story is told in such a way that we see and feel, that we see and feel it, that we experience the impact of it upon our own lives. We're not just thinking about it. We're seeing it and experiencing it and feeling it in our own lives. The story of Matthew, the crucifixion story in Matthew is told in such a way that we see and feel rather than just think about the many different manifestations of evil in the world. Matthew invites us to see them all converging on Jesus. That, that is what this story is all about, end quote. Um, as we live and move, as people of God, as followers of Jesus, as people who call upon the name of Jesus and say we follow him, as we live and move in this world, let us, as the author of Hebrews said, let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? The author of our faith, the protector of our faith. Jesus, we read this in the gospel narratives, always moves toward the hurting he moves toward the broken. He moves toward those who are afraid, those who have been oppressed with kindness and compassion and hope. Jesus sees everyone. And so if we're following Jesus in the way of Jesus, Lord, open our eyes to see people the way you saw everyone. He saw the humanity of the leper. He saw the woman. He saw the children. He saw the zealot. And he saw the soldier. He saw everyone. And so as compassion fatigue perhaps threatens to grab us or those we love, we have to know, church, that the antidote to evil has always been and will always be the compassion and the love and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Practically, practically, I mean, that sounds good. Like, okay, pastor, I hear you're saying that, yes. But here's what practically I mean by that. Practically, I, I think that means that we care about things that are happening nationally and, go, and globally, we care. It impacts us nationally, globally, and locally. It means loving intentionally. I was um, engaging in this conversation with my good friend Jody Green. Jody is uh, on our teaching team. She was just up in the Matthew series a few weeks ago, and so I wanted to offer to you some friends from my dear friend Jody about what what it means to love intentionally and locally. And these are her words. She said, what can we do to overcome evil with good? Ask God for eyes to see someone you might overlook. Someone already in your orbit. Today and hopefully for days to come, let's take a step toward living at God's speed. Being interruptible by someone at the grocery store. 
spending a few extra minutes at the park with a rowdy middle schooler who runs up on your kids. She's a mom of two little ones. Take a breath and scan your work meeting looking for someone who just might need your kindness today, end quote. The example of Jesus empowers us to respond in these loving, compassionate, hope-filled kind of ways as we continue to look at the crucifixion of Christ uh, this morning. Um, Let me give you the context of where we left off last week. Um, Jesus has been hanging on a Roman cross in Jerusalem, outside of the city gates of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, for approximately six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And for three hours, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., darkness has overcome the earth as Jesus suffers physically, but more importantly, more significantly, his suffering spiritually in separation from his Father as our substitute on the cross. And darkness has covered the earth because of it. Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, writes these words, Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. And what I want to emphasize contextually as we get into the story again today is that phrase, for us. It is so important for us to understand the phrase for us theologically. Theology matters. What we think about God and what we think about our relationship with God, theology matters. And this phrase for us is really, really significant. Jesus is a substitute. He substitutes himself for us. It's personal. In our place, in our place, he substitutes himself and atones for our sin. Uh, We talked about Barabbas last week, the thug, the murderer. He gets to go free, the murderer who deserved to die on the cross, Barabbas. He gets to go free, and Jesus goes to the cross. Like Barabbas, we go free, and Jesus goes to the cross for us. Um, This is where we left off. For us, let me turn this on. Matthew 27, 50. And when Jesus had cried out, again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Uh, Matthew doesn't record the last words of Jesus on the cross, but the gospel of John does. And the last words of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, before he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. What is finished? What's finished? Really important theologically. His mission. Jesus is not a victim. He's a volunteer. It's his mission to die in our place, to atone for our sin. The mission of Christ, the suffering of Christ, it is finished. Of all of the sayings of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, none is more important than it is finished. In the Greek language, what we translate, it is finished, is an accounting term. And it means paid in full. Like it is finished means paid in full. What is paid in full? 
what we owe because of our sin. Our wage is paid in full. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So to that reality, the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal separation from God, it is finished. It has been paid in full. That is what Jesus was declaring in that moment. Um, There's a song by Passion Music, It Is Finished. Uh, We've been singing about that already this morning. I just wanted to read a few lines from the first verse of this song. The cross is my, my beginning. It is personal for me. The line drawn in the sand, the end of all my striving, and now I am born again. There Jesus was forsaken, so I never will be. His grace is my salvation, the gift of God, the work of Calvary. Grace is here. Love has triumphed over death forever, all because Jesus died in our place for us. Hallelujah. This is the good news that I proclaim to you today. And so let us proclaim the good news. Let us preach the gospel to ourselves every day, lest we ever forget that we are free in Christ and that the atonement of Jesus for the sin of the world is finished, church. Next verse. At that moment, at what moment? At the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit The curtain of the temple, we're going to talk about that in just a second, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. There were three main sections uh, in uh, the temple, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, under the old covenant relationship that uh, God's people Israel had with God. And I want to just unpack some of this for you to understand the significance of the change that was happening in this moment. So here's a drawing of the temple. Uh, We're going to look at the top part. If you're in the balcony, someone told me last week that if you're on one side, you can't see when I'm pointing here. This is the inner court of the temple. This is the outer courts, inner courts. And then Solomon's porch And then you have the holy place and the sanctuary. And then right there in the purple is the holy of holies or is known as the most holy place. Uh, The inner court is where the great altar of burning incense. Uh, There's another drawing of it for you. That is, um, these are the outer courts out here. These are the inner courts. Sanctuary is inside those doors. And then the holy of holies inside of the sanctuary. Um, the altar, uh, you can see the, the drawing there, the painting there, the great altar of burning off, offering, uh, the basin that priests use uh, for ceremonial washings. And then you go um, up the, the stairway into the sanctuary, the holy place, seven branch golden candlestick, a table of consecrated bread, and the altar of incense. And then you go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, the innermost and most sacred area. Beyond the curtain, Uh, the drawing that I picked from didn't come in, but that's the curtain of the temple that was torn in two. And so this is the sanctuary, this is the holy place, and behind the curtain is the most holy place. And when Jesus died, that curtain right there was torn in two from top uh, to bottom. Now, inside, inside the holy of holies, there was 
something really, really, really sacred to Israel. Uh, anyone want to just shout out what was inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant of God was inside the Holy of Holies. And the high priest of Israel would go into the Holy of Holies. Anybody know how many times a year? Only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. We don't know this from Scripture, uh, but Jewish historians have told us uh, that uh, they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest that would only go into the, the very presence of God was in the Holy of Holies hovering over the ark at the mercy seat, which is over the top of the ark, okay? And they would tie a rope around the priest. Why would they do that? Because if he went in there to atone for the sin and he died in there, they'd drug his dead body out of there because there ain't nobody else going in there but the high priest because they're the only one that was allowed to go in there. So they would tie a rope around his ankle to drag him out. Um, the mercy seat is the lid, and that's the real significance of the Ark of the Covenant is what happened on the lid of the Ark. Um, mercy seat is the Hebrew word meaning to cover or to cleanse. The mercy seat was the only place under the old covenant of law that atonement could be made, and again, only one time of year. And what the high priest had to take in there with him, he had to take the blood of an animal to sprinkle on the mercy seat where the very presence of God was, and the blood of that animal would be the covering for the sin of the people. And so they would sprinkle blood of the animal onto the mercy seat to appease the justice of God, the wrath of God for the past sins committed. And again, the curtain uh, is the separation between the Holy of Holies and the most holy place. Um, Historians, again, Jewish historians, we don't know this from Scripture, uh, but this curtain was huge and thick. Uh, what history tells us, it was as thick as a man's hand, uh, four inches or so thick, uh, and it took 300 priests to manipulate it at all. And the reason why I share that with you is for you to understand when Jesus gave up his spirit and that curtain was cut in two, was torn in two. That was a miracle happening in the moment Jesus died. And it was something really significant. Not just a miracle was happening, but something brand new was happening in the way God has relationship with people. It gives me chills to even say that something brand new and it's so important for us to understand what happened the moment that miracle took place because the the curtain was a symbolic, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 helps us understand that the curtain was a symbolic uh, barrier between the holiness of God and humanity. And in the moment Jesus died, the curtain was torn away. And in a new way was being given for people to have relationship with God. This is what Hebrews 9, 7 says. Only the high priest entered the inner room or the, the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that only once a year and never, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. Here's the big point. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant 
was a symbolic foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God that doesn't just make a covering for sin, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which says your sin is canceled. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross was our sacrificial lamb, meaning this. When the curtain was torn in two because of the blood of Jesus, the barrier was now gone forever. So what is now the holy of holies? It's no longer in the holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. The holy of holies, the very presence of God, is the Holy Spirit. And guess where the holy of holies is now? It's in the people of God. And it's accessible to anyone who comes under the name and the blood of Jesus. This is the good news. This is the gospel to the nations. Hebrews 10, 19. Why is this not working? There we go. We have confidence. Do you think, do you think that Israel had confidence to go into the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant? They weren't allowed to go in. They were afraid. Do you think that the high priest had confidence? I mean, that, that had to, I mean, the transition of the temple going away and now the proclamation of the gospel is now you get to have confidence, courage, hope, peace to literally be in the very presence of a holy God. How? Because of the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, his body. What did Jesus say to the disciples on Thursday night in the upper room before Good Friday? This is my body broken for you. Curtain. Do this. Eat this. Receive this. Believe this. Be free in this. And so this Miracle happens the moment Jesus gives up his spirit and the implications of it are huge. The old covenant, the conditional covenant that Israel had with God, the old covenant of law, Moses, Mount Sinai, the conditional old covenant that was all set up, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, the high priest, all of the sacrifices, the, the priests getting up daily, every day, like all those realities, all those things that had to take place under the old covenant, conditional covenant. When the curtain tore open, it was done. No more old law covenant, no more conditional covenant with God. What was new? It's, there's no more temple. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more priests. There's no more striving. There's no more earning. Done. Church, and what was inaugurated by the blood of Jesus? The new covenant of grace. What's the big difference? It's the difference between conditional law and unconditional grace. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. And it's huge. And it's here when the curtain tore open. Jesus' blood inaugurates the new covenant of his blood. And the new covenant says you are free. You are free. And the power of God in that moment when Jesus gave up his spirit and that curtain tore and that miracle happened, the power of God in that moment in Jerusalem was so palpable that more miracles happened. The earth shook, the rocks split, and dead people buried in Jerusalem literally rose from the dead. 
Did you know that was in the Bible? I am on this platform on our Good Friday service, and Lindsay and I and Sarah West, we had these readings that we had picked out to do for Good Friday service, and I was like, well, I'll close it with the passage from Matthew 27, and it starts with, you know, Jesus' words on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with when the, the Roman centurion said, surely he was the son of God. But I didn't really proofread the whole passage before I got up to read it. And I'm literally up here on Good Friday, and I'm reading this, and I'm like reading this story about like dead people in Jerusalem, and the rock splitting, and they raised to life. And I'm like, did I even remember that was in the Bible? It's this mysterious, amazing, kind of confusing passage that most of us don't talk about very much. It certainly doesn't get preached on very much, but I'm going to preach on it today because it's in our passage. So here we go. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. Let me, let me start with 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, plural, tombs. Palestine, the tombs were uh, cut out of rock. They were cut out of rock and they were, we saw them when we went there uh, uh, two or three years ago and uh, families would have tombs. And they were like, they were vaulted tombs. And they have, you know, big stones that go in front of the tombs. And they broke open. Those tombs broke open. They're all around Jerusalem. And bodies, hear this, bodies of many holy people who had died there were raised to life. Right there in the Bible. They came out of the, after Jesus' resurrection, they came out of the tombs and they went into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and they appeared, they, the holy saints who were raised from the dead, appeared to many people. So it's like Sunday afternoon, maybe Monday afternoon, you're hanging out with your family and the word that Jesus is alive hasn't gotten to you yet. And in walks Uncle Jimmy right in the door. And you were at his service like weeks ago, months ago. I don't have any idea how long ago, but in walks Uncle Jimmy and your jaw hits the floor. That's, that's the story. This is the power of God. It, listen, it's a mysterious text for sure. But it's, I mean, let's be honest. This is pretty awesome. And we don't know a whole lot about what happened other than what we just read. Um, we don't know who exactly were raised and how long they had been in the rocks, the rock tombs, but we know some people were raised from the graves and we know they appeared to many people. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Because <laughs> it happened. Verse 54. And when the centurion and those, the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier, and those with him who were around him, there at Golgotha, at the cross, they were guarding Jesus. They saw the earthquake, and all that happened, they were terrified. Of course they were. And they ex and exclaimed, surely he was a son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. Many courageous, faithful Women were there. Where were the men? I'm just saying. I don't know. But, the, but women were there. Courageous, faithful 
women. I just want to say that out loud. And they followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. Matthew goes out of his way to emphasize that the scene had many eyewitnesses. There were many eyewitnesses to what happened in Jerusalem and that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And he goes out of his way to make sure that we know that there were many witnesses. Yes, the Roman centurion, Gentile, by the way, Gentile, and others with him, other gen- they saw They can give a testimony. How many people were raised from the tombs? I don't know, but they appeared to many people. They were eyewitnesses. And the women who were there were eyewitnesses following those courageous, faithful women. Verse 57, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Um, In the Gospel of John, it's in John 19, uh, we get a little bit more context for Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the Jewish leadership who murdered Jesus. And he was a disciple of Jesus in secret because he was for fear of the Jews. And someone else was also there with Joseph of Arimathea, and it was Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus that went to Jesus under the covering of night in John chapter 3, and that, I mean, it's John 3.16, right, the famous John 3.16, the context of John 3.16 is Jesus proclaiming that he is Messiah to Nicodemus, that statement of Jesus in John 3.16 was to Nicodemus, Nicodemus also became a follower of Jesus, and the courage that it took these two men who were part of the Jewish Sanhedrin to go to Pilate and ask for his body is remarkable. And the generosity that they show to Jesus, Joseph, a rich man, his tomb outside of Jerusalem, Only the wealthy people had tombs right outside of the city of Jerusalem. I mean, the tombs were all over Palestine. I mean, he's wealthy. He's he's part of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, wealthy, the finest linen, spices to prepare Jesus' body. Um, To see and feel and experience the story and not just think about it. Uh, Let's think for a moment about Joseph and Nicodemus. Have you ever considered who removed, literally removed the nails from Jesus' wrists and his feet? Joseph and Nicodemus. 
Can you consider for a moment how bloody the body of Jesus was? He had been scourged 39, um, flogged 39 times before he went to the cross. Who cleaned his body of all of the blood? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. Who, in their own grief, wrapped his body and prepared his body. Nicodemus purchased the finest linen, the best spices, and prepared Jesus' body. And those two men, those two courageous, faithful men, and those courageous, faithful women lead a small funeral procession from Golgotha to a little garden tomb nearby. And they laid Jesus, their Savior, in the tomb. Verse 62, the next day, the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate answered, and let me just say this before I say this. Maybe underline this verse and then next to it just write, ha, 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 next to it. Because listen to what Pilate says. He says, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how to make it. And we are the Easter people, to which we go, ha, 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 That's funny, church. That's funny. Come on, guys. Thank you, Bob. And so they went, and they made the tomb as secure by putting a seal, a Roman seal, on the stone and posting the Roman guard. Here's what I want to point out about this part of the story. The Lord's enemies remembered his prophecies that he said he will rise again in three days. So my question is, do you think that the disciples who were hiding and in fear, do you think that they also were remembering the prophecy of Jesus, his promise that he would rise three days later? Or do you think their grief and their confusion and their fear totally overwhelmed them to the degree that they forgot about the promises of God. And what I want to encourage you in is that in your grief and in your confusion and in your anger and in your brokenness, let us never forget the promises of God. There's always promises for us to hold on to no matter how far the valley of the shadow goes. I will be with you there as well. And I just think it's remarkable that the enemies remembered, but I'm not sure that the disciples were as certain about that in their grief. But we always have a secure hope no matter the circumstance. Why? Because of Matthew 28. It's the love of God. It's the compassion of God. It's the hope of God because of Matthew 28. And this 
This is the hope of the world. Jesus died for us in our place, and he rose again. I just want to read the entirety of Matthew 28 together. After the Sabbath, after Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, Sunday, three days after Friday, Friday, Saturday, third day, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, there she is again, those faithful, courageous women, and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came from heaven, going to the tomb, and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Do you think it was hard for the angel to roll the stone away? It was pretty secure to the degree that he sat on it. I think that's pretty funny too, actually. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, this angel, that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Amen. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell, go, go and tell the disciples. Tell them this, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So here's what the women, okay, he's not here. The angel is here. This secure stone is rolled away. We got to go tell the disciples. And the instruction of the angel to Mary and Mary was to tell the disciples to go where? You just heard me read it. To where? Galilee. And that's where they would see Jesus, right? I don't know if Jesus changed his mind. I don't know if the angel didn't get clear. I mean, but that's not what actually happened. So the next part, look at this. So the women hurried away from his tomb afraid yet filled with joy and they ran to tell his disciples exactly what the angel said suddenly jesus met them greetings hello and they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshiped and then jesus said to them same thing that the angel said Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. I love this gracious, hope-filled moment that Mary and Mary had with Jesus. That they weren't just going to the disciples to validate what the angel said to them. They were going to the disciples to share, we have seen the Lord and he is alive. And he said to go to Galilee. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards, by the way, in another gospel, Jesus also appears to the disciples before Galilee as well. Literally walks through the wall. You guys know that was in the Bible? You got to have a supernatural faith to believe this message. It's a miracle on miracle on miracle. It's what Paul says in Colossians. Let us not look only to the natural, but to the supernatural. Not just to the things of the earth, but to heaven. 
And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests and everything, everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if the report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. And when Jesus saw them, they worshipped him. It really just takes one encounter with the living God to change everything. And when you have an encounter with the resurrection, you worship. And that's what we see. And they worshiped. Some doubted. You know, I think of Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. I like to call doubting Thomas authentic Thomas. Like there's space for doubt. Like it's, there's grace for process. There's great. Jesus has grace. He said to Thomas, look, come and see. Come and see. It's okay. Like we don't need to just lean in and allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and allow people, like some doubted, and that's okay. And when Jesus came to them, he said, the Great Commission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. It's the third time in Matthew 28 that we have seen the word go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We have a message, church. We have a message. It's the message that the angel gave to Mary and Mary at the empty tomb on Easter Resurrection Sunday morning, and it's this. Here's the message. Go and tell. What do we tell? Jesus has risen from the dead. And we have a mission. We have a mission. What's the mission? The mission is to make disciples, followers of Jesus, who are transformed by Jesus along the way. I'll say it this way. Uh, the message is the mission. And the mission is the message. Go, 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 go and tell, go and make like the gospel is opposed to earning. Like it is finished, striving, earning, done, no law. You are free in Christ. Christianity isn't doing, Christianity is done. Why? Because Jesus has done it and he has given it to you and we receive it. And so Christianity isn't about earning, but Christianity is not opposed to going. Go, go, go. We have a mission, we have a message. If God told you to do something bold, would you do it? Like if God invited you into a purpose that was from heaven and it was a bold invitation, if God told you to do something bold, would you do it? And I would say that a grace-centered, it is finished, great commission proclamation is bold. It takes courage it takes perseverance, and you'll suffer. 
you'll suffer. You'll be hated. Jesus said, I mean, the world's going to hate you because of me. So it takes courage because you're going to suffer. Seeing every person, seeing every person and loving with compassion, it's not easy. Not easy. It's bold. And as you learn to see people and love people the way Jesus loves people, guess what? You're going to suffer with them when they suffer because you love them. It's why Paul says in Romans 8, we will share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If God told you to do something bold, would you do it? Well, he is inviting you to do something bold. And I am calling you to go with me and with us and with his church. We have a message and we have a mission. And it's worth our lives. Jesus is risen. Amen? And the message is his grace. And so let us not despair when suffering comes, robbing us of a chance to inject grace and kindness and love into the world. We refuse to let evil and competing ideologies of this world to steal away a moment for us to proclaim the kindness of God and the hope of God in Jesus. Because the Great Commission is for all nations. Who are the witnesses? Gentiles and women, not just Jewish men. The gospel is to the nations, every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity. It is simple. I believe this. It is simple to love with compassion, the compassion and the hope of Jesus. But it's not easy. It's not easy. Especially, especially when someone has wronged you. It's simple, but it's not easy. And the only, the only way I can even begin to move in that direction is if the grace of God supernaturally empowers me to do it. And it's why Jesus said these last words that Matthew records. Hey, it's going to take boldness. It's going to take courage. It's going to take perseverance. It's not easy, but it is the way of Jesus. It is my way. And I will be with you always. But Jesus told the disciples in John 10, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. And so to, to receive this message and to live this message, we must receive the enablement of the Spirit of God, the grace of God, so that we can walk in the way of Jesus and be a light in the darkness in this world. And so I proclaim to you the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and I proclaim to you his promise that he is with you always, even now.